Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 7. I know that Heath read from Psalm 136. But I think as we'll see very quickly that Psalm 136 and Isaiah 46 that we read this morning are all very much in tune, very much connected to what we we're going to see in Stephen's speech in Acts 7. So if you would turn there, um, we will read that whole chapter here in a minute. Um, but before that, um, there's, there's an old saying that goes, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And I'm sure all of us have heard that quote in some form or another, seen a meme of it on social media or whatever else. But those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And this morning, we're looking at a text that is dedicated to remembering the past, to not forgetting history. In particular, not just history as a whole, but the works of God in history, the way that his steadfast love has endured forever, and he has shown himself, he has shown himself to us by those works. So what Stephen is doing in Acts 7 is essentially giving a 30,000-foot overview of Israel's history from Abraham to David. And in it, he is showing that steadfast love of God that endures forever. And what's interesting about this is while Stephen is one of the members of the early church, what he is doing is picking up on a very common Old Testament theme. The people of Israel in the Old Testament are shown to be constantly forgetting God. They forget his covenant, they forget his faithfulness to them, they forget his grace towards them, and then they repeatedly turn to foreign gods and offer sacrifices to them instead of worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone. But this forgetfulness in the Old Testament, it's not just a mental thing. It's not just that they have forgotten to recollect information or that it has gone out of their, their memory. Forgetfulness in the Old Testament is often synonymous with idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. And so no less than 51 times in the Old Testament, God calls Israel through his prophets to, quote, remember, remember me. Remember me who has done all of these things for you. Remember my covenant with you and repent from your covenantal infidelity. And by remembering, he isn't just calling them into this strict recollection, but to action. They are to remember and then act in light of this memory. They are to act in light of God's faithfulness to them with faithfulness to God from themselves. Because God has done this in the past, we remember the mighty works of God and we glorify him and praise him in the present, remembering that his steadfast love endures forever. So as we'll see in our text this morning, Stephen is standing before the Jewish religious, religious leaders and essentially functioning like an Old Testament prophet. He's saying, remember these mighty, max, these mighty acts of old that God has done, and because you have not done that, you now stand accused. They have now forgotten God's faithfulness like their fathers did before them. And then because they have forgotten and not acted in light of the covenant, they have now even crucified the very Messiah who was promised to them in all of these acts of God in the past. These Israelite leaders were blinded by their desire for political liberation. Because of this, they have missed the one who can give them spiritual deliverance. They are so focused on their earthly kingdoms that they have missed the kingdom of God inaugurated by the work of Christ. They have taken their eye off of the heavenly things and placed their hope in things of the earth. And so it is my, it is my hope this morning that as we read the account of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, that the Spirit would convict us in the areas of our lives where we are forgetting God's faithfulness and his promises and his purposes in our lives. Or the areas where we're not acting in light of his faithfulness and grace towards us. My hope is that at the end of our time this morning, 
that we would have a renewed desire to go to God in his word. And we would read the mighty acts of him in history, not as those, not as observers, but as participants. That we would remember that the Exodus is not just for Israel as they cross through the Red Sea, but the Exodus is for us as Jesus has led us from the, the dominion of sin and death and into his marvelous light. Ultimately, my hope this morning is that we would remember. We would remember. So I'm going to read all of Acts 7. It's a pretty big chunk. But in doing this, as I was thinking about, um, you know, do I break this up or not, in reading a big chunk, I think there's a little bit of preaching even that, even in that, in in reading big sections of God's word together. So I'm going to read um, this chapter, and then we will get into our time this morning. Acts 7, starting in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length's but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, and said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave, him, he gave them a covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Verse 17. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would have understood that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? 
Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice from the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, gave them over to the worship um, to, to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech in the star of your God, Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses dictated him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with, with, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophets say, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They then cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to your works written down, may we remember you. 
like Stephen, as we recount the mighty works of old, we would know you and we would see their fulfillment ultimately in Christ, that we would not neglect your covenant faithfulness with our covenant infidelity, but we, by your grace and your Son and through your Spirit, would be bound to you tightly in a covenantal relationship in love and mutual affection, and that is our blessedness. Be with me now as I proclaim your word, and be with all of us that our hearts would be softened, and our eyes would be opened, and our ears would be prepared to hear the word of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, in this long text, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the promises of God, the works of God, and the word of God. So first, the promises of God. So at this point in church history, when Stephen is giving this speech, the church is just now getting established. It's not even until Acts chapter 11 that the name Christians is assigned to this group of people. So at this point, there is a decent bit of confusion about the, about the, the nature of this group of people who, qual- who follow what is called, quote, the way. Are they to be seen as just another sect of the Jewish religion, or are they to be seen as something entirely new, something entirely different? And while these questions don't get fully resolved in the surrounding world for a while, what we see in the account of Stephen is that from very early on, the Jewish religious leaders did not like what the disciples of Jesus Christ were doing. They saw immediate discontinuity with them. And what we see in the Jewish response to Stephen is that they don't like what's happening. So while we don't get a a record of what Stephen is saying, what we do get by Luke is the record of their response to him. And in that, we get a lot of insight. So in Acts 6, 8 through 15, we see that Stephen was full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. And now, again, we don't get the content of Stephen's speech, but we do get what they said. So these religious or these Jewish people come to Stephen as they hear him speaking, and they say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and that Stephen never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. And they've even heard Stephen say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to them. So in these accusations, we see that these people see Stephen's preaching as antithetical to their religious customs as they have interpreted them as they have been handed down from Moses to the Israelite people. In fact, it's not just that this is just a little bit of error. They're not making just a little bit of a a change to this. It is They call it blasphemy against God. It is actually hostile to the teaching that they are used to and the way that they have interpreted the law so far. And already at this point, we begin to see a dichotomy. We begin to see the real issue. As the gospel spread throughout the ancient world, more and more people began to realize that this sect of people who followed the way could not possibly be reconciled to the traditional Jewish customs of the day. It has established itself against the Jewish teachings as the people had interpreted them. But what's so interesting about this discontinuity, about this dichotomy, is that as Stephen stands before the council in Acts 7, he does not disregard Israel's history. He does not say that Israel is unimportant in redemptive history. He does not say that the Israelites are wrong in saying that they are God's chosen people. In fact, it is exactly these things that Stephen appeals to in order to make his defense before the council. And so what's important to note is that even though Christianity, as we see it in the church, comes on the scene, and everyone perceives it to be introducing something radically different than what the Jews had been teaching at the time, it is actually not the newness or the novelty of Christianity 
but it is the failure of the Israelite people to interpret their history correctly that accounts for this dissimilarity. The problem is that the Jews misinterpreted the promises of God by looking for earthly fulfillment to heavenly promises. They expected a throne to be established on earth where they may possess a physical land. But they missed the point that the promises of God, even in those earthly elements, even in the throne of David, even in the promised land, all of the promises of God were ultimately pointing to their fulfillment in the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven by the promised Messiah. They looked for political dominion where God always promised spiritual deliverance. And so Stephen starts his speech at the most foundational level by appealing back to God's promises to Abraham. From Abraham would come the patriarchs and eventually the whole nation of Israel. And centuries before the Exodus, God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land after they were enslaved by foreign nations for 400 years. God promised that he would raise up a leader who would deliver them out of this captivity so that they may serve God in the promised land. God is making promises to Abraham of deliverance. But as we'll see in the rest of the passage, Stephen is not using these promises in the same way that these religious leaders are. He's a, he, he might be establishing a common point of origin. We can say, we can both agree on this. God made promises to Abraham. And on this point, we agree. But the rest of his speech is showing that from this point forward, the Jewish leaders have diverged from the intent of those promises. They have misinterpreted them from the beginning. They have misused them. Where they are meant to glorify God, they have used them to glorify themselves. Instead of seeing the Exodus as an earthly shadow of the substance of heavenly deliverance, they saw it as the paradigm of Israelite political independence. They missed that the promise of deliverance from Egypt was always meant to point to them to the fulfillment of deliverance from the domain of sin and death. Instead of seeing the Exodus sacramentally, that is, as a physical representation of a spiritual reality, they saw the Exodus as a means to their own ends, to their goal of establishing themselves and their political sovereignty in the land of Canaan. And so at the time of Acts 7, it's no secret that the Israelites had this impulse. They had this burning desire for another Exodus. They've been subjugated to Roman authorities and treated as second-class citizens in Rome. And so they are longing for, they are anticipating and hoping for a leader like Moses to rise up and deliver them once again from the oppression of a foreign nation. But just like their fathers before him, they have missed the point of the promises. They've lowered their gaze to their temporal afflictions instead of seeing their need for eternal deliverance. And so we see what Stephen is doing here. By appealing to the most foundational promises of God to the nation of Israel, he is hurling the accusation of blasphemy back in their faces. It is not Stephen, but the religious leaders who have missed the point. They have misinterpreted the promises of God as promises of earthly and political salvation instead of spiritual salvation. They have missed the forest of God's heavenly kingdom by focusing on the trees of earthly dominion. So what about us? So for us, when we come to our Bibles, we must guard against making the same mistake as these religious leaders. When we see the promise, like his plans are for us to prosper, we should never look to earthly things, earthly comfort, and earthly circumstances as the fulfillment of this promise. When we read promises of long life in the land, we should never look to a particular nation or place as its locus. Because all of these promises are yes and amen in Christ. 
And all of these promises are meant to point to the spiritual realities of peace with God and eternal life in the new Canaan, the heavenly Jerusalem ushered in on the last day. And so even in the already, we must never lower our gaze and forget the promises of the coming glory of the not yet. And while, yes, it is true that God will not leave us or forsake us as he promises, this has way more to do with the fact that he, by his grace and in his spirit, will bring us to that final fulfillment where our faith will be made sight and we shall inherit the heavenly Jerusalem. Our hope is in the kingdom to come, not in the kingdoms of this world. And that will drastically change the way that we act in light of these promises. We will not look to earthly fulfillment, earthly circumstances as our salvation, but we will remember that God has done something. God has done something definitive in history that means that we can know him for all of eternity. And so we don't put our hope in earthly kingdoms, our own little kingdoms in our lives. We put our hope in the kingdom that has now been inaugurated and eventually will be consummated on that last day. We act in light of those promises. Second, we look at the works of God. So from the beginning of his speech, Stephen establishes sort of a theological foundation for the promises of God. All of these promises are ultimately pointing towards their fulfillment in Christ. Well, then from this point, he moves into a theological interpretation of the works of God, where he will show how God has been acting in history in light of these promises to bring them to fulfillment. And in doing this, Stephen, as we have seen, Stephen is actually following a biblical pattern. The repetition of God's promises and then the recitation of God's acts is a pattern we see repeatedly in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses gathers the people to remind them of the mighty works of God in delivering them from Egypt. And then based on this work, Moses then urges Israel to worship God and God alone. Well, then after Israel has crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, they conquer the land by the hand of God guiding them. Joshua gathers the people in Joshua 24 and recites all that the Lord has done for them and calls the people to renewed covenant faithfulness. As the last of the judges, Samuel in 1 Samuel 7, urges the people to remember the faithfulness of God in delivering them from foreign enemies before the kingship has established. The people do not do this. They are led into exile. But then when they are come back by God's grace, when they are brought back into the land by God's hand, Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9 offers the people an extensive history of God's faithfulness in bringing them back into the land, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the nation of Israel even after their covenant Infidelity, And as we saw in Psalm 136 this morning, the Psalms are full of this pattern. So Stephen's not doing anything new. We see this all over the place in our Bible. Just like the prophets, the judges, the kings, and the psalmists before him, he is simply interpreting the works of God as the display of God's faithfulness and steadfast love towards the Israelites and staying true to his covenant with them. But in the face of this steadfast love, Stephen, like the prophets, is calling out the unfaithfulness of the people. Only now it has escalated. They're not just rejecting Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses. They have rejected the Messiah. Even in this, it's important to think about why this pattern shows up over and over in the Bible and why the prophets and now Stephen so often appeal to the works of God as a testimony against the unfaithfulness uh, against the people. So what I want to do now um, is spend a little bit of time thinking about why we do this. Why does the Bible so often look to the works of God in, um, in, in accusing the people of covenant infidelity? Why do we look to our Old Testament narrative? Why do we look to our New Testament narrative um, to see God? 
So when it comes to our thinking about God, when it comes to our understanding of knowing God, there's something that's very, very important to remember. And that is that God is God and we are not. Really profound stuff. And I know you might be thinking, well, yeah, exactly. God is God and I am not. But it's extremely important because so often we can take this truth for granted. We can think that God is one like us. We can forget that God is totally other, that he is transcendent, that he is above us. Because if we remember that God is God and we are not, we are reminded that God is eternal and we are temporal. God is infinite and we are finite. God is perfect. We are imperfect. God is whole and we are composite. God is omniscient and we are ignorant. God is omnipotent and we are frail. And so on the list goes. But in all of these things, as we remember and appreciate that God is God and we are not, we must never forget that his being is so transcendent from ours that our only hope of knowing him is if he, by his own prerogative, by some grace that he gives, if he condescends and reveals himself to us. His ways are higher than ours. His being is transcendent from us. So if we are to know God, God must initiate. So as Stephen starts with Abraham and moves all the way to David, he shows that God chose Abraham and promised to make his descendants into a great nation. Then God protected Jacob and through this providence carried Israel to Egypt. When Pharaoh arose that no longer knew Jacob, the Israelites were oppressed for 400 years. And then God raises up Moses and by God's mighty act delivered Israel in the Exodus. Stephen shows how God led Joshua and the people in the conquest of Canaan and went before them in battle that they might possess the promised land. God raises up David and promises to give him rest from his enemies. God establishes the Davidic kingship and then his son Solomon builds the temple so that God's presence may rest in Jerusalem. And so Stephen is making the point that at each juncture, at each one of these examples, the presence of God is made more fully manifest to the people of Israel. God comes to Abraham in a vision, to Moses in a burning bush, to the people in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and with the people in the tabernacle, and then residing with the people in the temple. So what's happening? Redemptive history is the narrative of God more fully revealing himself in his works to his people. And then what we see in Jesus is the climax of this redemptive history where he reveals himself most fully in his son. The works of God are testimonies to the character of God. The works of God are meant to show us God. And so we look to them to see him. But we see him most fully in his son. It is Jesus who is the radiance of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. But just like the people forgot these mighty acts of grace in the past, so now they have forgotten. They have not acted in light of God's covenant faithfulness before them, and they have rejected Jesus Christ, the very Messiah. And as Stephen recounts all the ways that God has revealed himself to the people, the religious leaders stand accused because they have now rejected the fullest revelation of of the person of God in Jesus Christ. They have forgotten their history. They haven't acted in light of the covenant. And because of this, they are now doomed to repeat their history, to reject God, to reject his works, to ignore, to forget, to not remember, to not act in light of. So for us, we must be a people who remember. We must come to Scripture and learn the mighty works of God in the past. But on this side of the cross, we see what those acts point towards. We don't read our Bibles as just good fairy tales, just good feel, try harder, be better, just good fairy tales with the moral of the story. 
We come to the exodus as those delivered from the land of sin and death. We come to the conquest of Canaan as those who have been united to Christ and have experienced victory over the ruler of this present age. We come to the Davidic kingship being established as those who know the king of kings as a brother and as our co-heir with Christ. All of the works of God in the Old Testament are preparing us and anticipating us for their final fulfillment in the work of Christ. And all of God's works in the book of Acts and in the New Testament and the church today are meant to show us that Christ has come. His spirit has been poured out. Salvation has been accomplished. His blood has been spilled. And we can know God. And as he gets closer and closer to the people in the Old Testament, so now he is so intimately bound up with us by the indwelling of his spirit. We can know blessedness because God dwells in us. We don't look for outside things. We look to the word of God and the spirit inside of us so that we may know him. So again, we don't look to our Bibles as just fairy tales or fables with a good moral of the story, but as a narrative with a purpose. And that purpose is to reveal God to us. The Bible is not a story or a myth, but it is the narrative. It is the record of God's faithfulness to his people. It is the history of a sin-stricken world who has increasingly shown the love of God, who would not leave them in their sin, but at the cost of his very own son would redeem us into peace with him. Lastly, we're going to look at the word of God. As Stephen comes to the end of his speech, he begins to wrap all of this up in a nice bow. He stands accused of blasphemy against God and the law, but he has shown that the promises of God and the acts of God show that he is blameless before these men. That God has promised that one day there would come a Savior who would not only deliver the people from Egypt, but from the dominion of sin and death. And now that the Christ has come, the people again have rejected him. (laughs) And I love his boldness here. It is only in the spirit that you could stand before something like the Sanhedrin and say what Stephen is saying. He doesn't pull any punches. At stake stake is the very hope of humanity. And so he is not willing to sacrifice even an ounce of the truth. He calls the people stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears who always resist the Holy Spirit just like their fathers before them. Assuming themselves righteous, they have been found judged by the coming Christ. And so they take him out of the gate and they stone him to death. Their self-righteousness cannot bear the weight of Stephen's accusation. But by God's grace, Stephen is able to bear the weight of their false accusation. But the reality is that the discontinuity that we talked about earlier, the Jewish religious leaders have seen Stephen as a heretic. They have seen him as someone completely opposed to the nation of Israel and to the promises and law of God. Stephen has now become an enemy of the state. But what the Israelite leaders do not realize is that they are the ones who have become enemies of God because they have rejected the Christ. But then as Stephen is being stoned in the outer gates, he raises his voice. The heavens open up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Though man may accuse him and reject him, Jesus is at the right hand welcoming Stephen home. You can hear the remnant, well done, good and faithful servant. And Luke records that those casting out the stones closed their ears so that they could not hear. The point being, I'm not just not going to remember. I have no interest in learning anymore. I have no interest. I'm done. They are done with Stephen. They are done with the church. We have rejected and now our hearts have been hardened. And in this account, we see that there are ultimately two options. 
as we come to God's word as it is written down and delivered to us in scriptures, we can either listen to it, we can look at the beauty of God as he revealed himself in his acts recorded on these pages, or we, like these religious leaders, can close our ears up tight. I don't want to hear it. As we look to the promises of God, we can, by God's grace, see the redemptive narrative that he has been accomplishing through history, or we can reason that we do not need this type of salvation that he has offered and ultimately reject the gospel as folly, as silly, as a child's game. These religious leaders had no interest in redemption from sin because all they could see was their desire for redemption from Rome. They had no interest in the kingdom of God being inaugurated through the finished work of Christ because all they wanted was, was liberation and political sovereignty here on earth. They wanted a different gospel. They wanted a gospel that ignored their sin but gave them the desires of their sinful hearts. And Stephen would not back down because to settle for a different gospel is to reject the risen Christ. To bow down to human rulers is to abandon the prince of peace. And the gospel that Stephen was preaching to them is the same one that is preached to us every time we open our Bibles. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God and God in the flesh, by his life, death, and resurrection, that those who cling to him by his grace through faith are adopted as sons of the King of all kings. That we may know peace that surpasses all understanding, that the light of God's face may shine upon us for the rest of everlasting, and we may know blessedness all of our days. That our biggest need has been met, our sinfulness has been atoned for, and we can have relationship with God by grace through faith in his Son and in his Spirit, the most intimate type of relationship with our Father. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ, and so we raise our yes and amen to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his Spirit has redeemed us so that we may cry out, Abba, Father, for all of eternity. We cling to the one who has delivered us from the power of sin and death and has given us new life in the Spirit. We praise Jesus that he became sin who knew no sin, that we would be called the righteousness of God, that those who were once dead in the sins and trespasses of Adam may find new life in the new and better Adam, the firstborn of the new humanity, Jesus Christ. This is not the deliverance that these religious leaders wanted. They were blinded to their biggest need. So we must examine our own hearts. What are the areas that I'm neglecting the gospel of Christ for a lesser gospel? Where am I putting my hope for deliverance, for salvation, for happiness, and what I think will make me blessed? Maybe it's the gospel of earthly comfort, financial stability. Maybe it's the gospel of some relationship with another person that we think will bring us lasting happiness. Maybe it's the gospel of politics where we believe that if we would just elect the right candidate or give power to the right party, we would have peace in the land. None of these Gospels offer true blessedness. None of these Gospels will satisfy our hearts. Because as Ecclesiastes said, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. That is a hole far too big for any temporal thing to fill. Only the eternal, blessed, triune God can satisfy what our hearts desire. We are blinded by our sin so often. So let us examine ourselves by grace through faith and by the Spirit. May, may God show us the places where we are saying, if I could only get this, then I would finally be happy. If I could only get Christ, I would finally be happy. That's the only thing. God's word is written down to us as the testimony of the love of God that is most fully revealed to us in his word incarnate. 
All of history sings the tune of God's faithfulness. God has composed a symphony across history where each of his acts are the notes and where we hear the melody of God's glory. As the creator, he has laid out the measure, and as the redeemer, he has placed the notes. And as we come to him by his word, by faith, we are given ears to hear the love song that he has written to us. And it goes like this. For God so loved the world that he promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. For God so loved the world that he revealed himself to Abraham and promised to make his descendants as numerous as the stars. For God so loved the world that he raised up Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt so that they may know them and he may know them through his law. For God so loved the world that he placed David on the throne and promised that a man would come from this line whose kingdom would never end. And for God so loved the world that that boy was born in a manger, in Bethlehem, in a pigsty. The Savior of the world was born. For God so loved the world that His Son took on flesh. For God so loved the world that this Son was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. For God so loved the world that this Son would withstand the temptation from the serpent in the wilderness and where our first, person, or our first parents failed, He established Himself as the, as the righteous one, as the new Adam. For God so loved the world that his son would be falsely accused. He would be brought to die on a criminal's cross for crimes that he did not commit. For God so loved the world that he would not let death hold this son in the grave, but by God's immeasurable power, he would raise this son from the grave on the third day. For God so loved the world that sin and death are defeated. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. These are the mighty works of God. These are the places where God reveals himself to us. And so as we come to our Bibles, all the way back in Genesis, even in Leviticus, God is revealing his very self to us in the words on these pages. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even the division of soul and spirit. It convicts us, it refines us, it edifies us. Jesus prays to the Father and said, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so we come to the Bible, not to feel better about ourselves, not to find a good moral of the story, not to find 10, world, ten better ways to live, 10 ways to happiness. We come to the Bible to see God, to see the triune, eternally blessed God of all of eternity who has revealed himself in finite and recognizable ways in history. And it's not just that he has done these things on a grand scale. All of us who by the Spirit are united to this triune God, we can raise an Ebenezer every time we see his faithfulness. We raise an Ebenezer when we see sin put to death. We raise an Ebenezer when we see prayers being fulfilled, being answered. We raise an Ebenezer that one day we will see God as he is face to face. As he has been faithful in the past, so he will be faithful in the future. He who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion in the day of Christ Jesus. These are the works of God. These are the promises of God. And so as God's people, may we never forget them. Pray with me. Lord, we are thankful. Lord, we stand in awe of the fact that you, enthroned in light and robed in inapproachable darkness, that we may know you by the works of your hands, that though you are one in being, we may see you through the multiplicity of your works in history. 
like a diamond being displayed from all different angles. Lord, we come to your word to see you and to appreciate you in so many ways. Though we are finite, you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we can understand. Though you are infinite, you have condescended most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray for our hearts. When our hearts tempt us to look downwards, when they tempt us to look to lesser things, when they tempt us to make golden images of created things like a calf that the people made in the wilderness, by your grace and in your spirit, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would raise our gaze. Like the serpent that was raised up in the wilderness, may we look up to, crawl, to Jesus who died on a cross in history, at a place in time and space. May we look to him high and lifted up as the one who has shown us that the love of God would not leave us nor forsake us, but would even submit himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be called children of God, reconciled, having our biggest need accounted for. Lord, you are good and you are faithful. So I pray that by your spirit, you would make our hearts see you and appreciate you and love you more. Because we know in that there is blessedness. In that there is life. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.